So these might be areas that have really large bat colonies, or they might be areas that have a large number of smaller bat colonies, but that's exactly what we're trying to work out. Uh, if we can work that out, then that means that we can target our vaccination towards those colonies that are more important, which might allow you to have a lesser overall investment for a greater impact in terms of your reduction of rabies transmission. About this time last year in 2016, we made an episode of Contagious Thinking, which I encourage you all to have a listen to, about vampire bats and the deadly rabies virus that they can carry and spread across Latin America. Here we talk with Daniel Stryker, who works between the CVR and the Institute of Biodiversity, Animal Health and Comparative Medicine in Glasgow, and Julio Benavides, a postdoc in his lab, about their recent studies on tracking and predicting how and when vampire bat rabies will move through Peru, from the Amazon in the east to the Pacific Ocean to the west. One point raised in this episode was, what use is a prediction if you don't act on it? In this latest seasonally inspired follow-up episode of the CVR's podcast, Andrew Shaw and I catch up and return to Darkest Peru with Daniel and Kevin Baker, a new postdoc in his group about using a vaccine against rabies for wild vampire bats. We discuss why you might need a vaccine, how would you even vaccinate wild bats, and how do you make sure you're doing it in the best way possible. I'm Kevin Baker. I'm a postdoc in the Stryker Lab here at the University of Glasgow, um, and I work on infectious disease dynamics when it, uh, and the relationship to vaccination implications. I'm Daniel Stryker. I'm a Sir Henry Dale Fellow based at the Institute of Biodiversity, Animal Health, and Comparative Medicine and the Center of Virus Research, and my group studies all things related to the ecology and emergence of viruses, mostly originating from bats. Yeah, so about a year ago, we talked to you and Julio before um, about your work, and you think you just recently published a paper in PNAS about sort of predicting the spread of vampire bat rabies, and I think we had touched on a little bit about how you can stop that, um, or how you can sort of modify that, and um, so maybe we can talk about that today, yeah, and uh, maybe I'll give you, you can give us an update on your work, and we can focus on that bit. Sure. Uh, so... As you said, one of the really exciting things that we were able to do in the previous work, which is using really a population genetic approach from both hosts and viruses, was to generate some forecasts of where rabies should emerge from bats into livestock in Latin America. So one of the main questions that, of course, comes up from that sort of result is then, well, what do you do about it? If you know rabies is going to affect some community in the next six months to a year, is there anything that you can do about it? And one obvious thing you can do is advise that community, educate them, uh, and encourage them to pursue vaccination of themselves or their animals. But ultimately, what we would like to do is reduce the transmission of rabies in, because in, in the bat population itself, because that is really the thing that is driving the virus forward. It's the transmission uh, to cattle, domestic animals, and people is a dead-end infection. So if you want to do something about actually stopping these advancing wavefronts of infection, you need to target the bat population itself. And so we were lucky to get a small grant from the Royal Society through the um, Global Challenges Research Fund, which has enabled us to start exploring an alternative to, um, to controlling rabies simply by vaccinating animals and people, and instead thinking about vaccinating the bats themselves. And so the aim of this work is to work out is such a strategy feasible um, for reducing or even eliminating rabies within the natural reservoir host? Okay. 
imps. So is there any precedent for this? Like reducing, um, so you've got large wild populations um, in this kind of population dynamic. Is there a precedent for reducing viral loads? Yeah, so I mean, vaccination has been absolutely the cornerstone of rabies control. And historically, we're thinking about vaccination of dogs. That has been the thing that has eliminated rabies. And it is still the thing that reduces human rabies deaths the most. If you're thinking about vaccinating and free-ranging wildlife, of course, it's a little bit more complicated. But that has been successful in Europe with the elimination of box rabies from Western Europe. It's been successful also in Eastern North America, at least for preventing the spread of rabies in raccoon populations uh, further west than it already is. So we're hoping to try to take those sorts of ideas and apply it in the bat system, which is fairly uncharted waters. However, we think based on the epidemiology of rabies, it might be possible. And based on a little bit of work that's already been done developing vaccines that could be transmitted through um, a topical route, which I can talk a little bit more about later, uh, we think that there is reason to pursue this and be encouraged that it might be an avenue for intervention in the future. Are there any bad vaccines out there? There are vaccines that have been tested in bats. So one of those is a vaccinia vectored recombinant vaccine, um, which has been done tested in a couple of trials in captive bats, and it seemed to work pretty well. Uh, there's also a newer vaccine, which uses a raccoon pox virus vector. And that was tested recently by some of our collaborators, uh, Tony Rocky and Jorge Osorio, who are based in the States, and they found that that vaccine works really well, both through oral administration and topical administration. So when you put it on a bat and let the bat groom it off, or let other bats that it's housed with groom it off. so. They found that, that those vaccines do protect well against future rabies challenges. But of course, now the next stage to this is, can you apply something like that in the real world and have some hope of a beneficial outcome? So what about uh, vaccines for wildlife in general? Is there, are there many vaccines for wildlife? Um, it's always difficult to vaccinate wildlife because people don't like to mess too much with natural systems. Um, I think the ones that I know about uh, would be the rabies vaccines. So uh, raccoon rabies for uh, in the US, fox rabies in Europe. Uh, another system where vaccination is used similarly is um, for plague and prairie dogs in the Western United States. So that's also being implemented through a bait system. So the, really the, one of the challenges is kind of protecting wildlife and keeping them separate. Another challenge is actually how do you get a vaccine to free-ranging wildlife. Uh, it's one thing if you're dealing with domestic dogs and you can tell people, bring your dogs into this campaign on this day and we'll vaccinate them. It's another thing when it's wildlife that don't want to be caught. So you need to either find some way to attract the wildlife to your vaccine or go out and catch them. Now, I've never been to a bat cave, as great as that might be, but what's the kind of dynamics of these bat populations and so do we know about the seroprevalence or the sort of prevalence of the virus itself among the different populations of bats the prevalence of rabies within bat populations is generally quite low so you're looking at probably less than one percent of animals that are infected and actively shedding virus the seroprevalence is a little bit higher so probably around 10 20 percent um and so that, that's obviously a disconnect. And so one of the things that we think is happening is a lot of bats get exposed to rabies, but then don't actually go on to develop clinical disease. So they're protected. 
That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we suspect that they have some level of protection from their previous exposures. Uh, and there is a little bit of experimental work to back that up. But there's a lot that we don't yet know about the dynamics of that immune response and how protective it is at different levels of antibody titers. These are big uncertainties at the moment. Okay. So then, Kevin, where do you come into all this? Yeah, so I just uh, completed my PhD in the States, and I've known Daniel for a couple of years, and we uh, met up last fall, and he talked to me about this really interesting project, and he thought, if, you know, if it gets funded, would you be interested? And I said, yeah, absolutely, I'm interested in uh, immunization uh, and disease modeling, and this will be a, a new system for me, give me a chance to, to learn something new, uh, as most of my previous work has been with human uh, infectious diseases. Uh, and so I uh, graduated this summer, uh, started with Daniel a couple of weeks ago, and uh, put together a couple of models, uh, you know, re-implemented some previous stuff that uh, Daniel and others have done, and uh, we're trying to figure out what sort of uh, vaccination uh, parameters we can fit to uh, what's going on and what sort of results we might get. So by vaccine parameters, what, what does that mean? Well, so when you get a, uh, the vaccine that we're, we're thinking about using, uh, it's a topical vaccine. Uh, and so you can, if you capture a bat, you can give it orally as well. Uh, and our collaborators have shown that that's very effective and the topical is, is almost near as, as effective. But the thought is, is you capture a vampire bat, uh, you coat it topically with uh, this vaccine, and it's almost like a, a Vaseline paste. And so you kind of mix it in under the, the vampire bat skin uh, and fur and you release it. it uh, Optimally, it goes back to the cave and others will groom it. So vampire bats are very social. They'll mutually groom each other. They'll directly groom each other and they'll share in food. Uh, so the, the hope is that bats that we weren't able to capture uh, make contact with these, with these uh, bats that were given the vaccine. They groom it off. They take it up orally and then they become immune. And so we went out earlier this year in February uh, and did a biomarker sample. So as a, a proxy for vaccination. Uh, we captured a bunch of bats on day one, went back about a week. Uh, on day one, we gave them this vaccine, so we gave it to them orally, or we gave them the biomarker. Um, so what, what, what is a biomarker? Yeah, so a biomarker, uh, this one specifically is called rhodamine B. It's non-toxic. Uh, you basically give it to a bat, and after it ingests it, after about 24 hours, uh, if you, if you give, take a hair sample, you look under a microscope, under certain uh, optic conditions, you'll be able to see it glowing. Uh, and that's basically evidence showing that uh, that bat consumed this uh, biomarker, mm-hmm. uh, and and so we can we're basically using it as a proxy for a vaccine. Vaccine. So assuming that uh, if a bat is going to basically clean another vampire bat and consume this biomarker, we can think a vaccine will act in a similar manner. Um, and so we went out, we gave the biomarker to a, a certain number of bats, uh, released them all, came back a week later, captured as many bats as we could. Uh, a lot of those were actually recaptures, which is a, a good control, because then we also took their ham- hair samples, looked at the microscope, and uh, luckily enough, they all they all glowed uh, under this optical con- conditions for the uh, rhodamine B, the biomarker. Um, and then, in fact, uh, about 40% of the other bats that were new captures also showed positive results. So this what this means is that over that time period from the initial marking and the recapturing, that approximately 40% of of bats that we didn't know existed, uh, basically groomed or shared food, were in close enough contact where they consumed this biomarker. And for uh, the purposes that we're using it for, is that's essentially a, a transmission event. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what? So I guess you're looking for a certain percentage of bats to 
yeah take, so it, the vaccine yeah so it's a it's an interesting trade-off so um, when you think about how do we immunize a colony you have to think about well how many individuals there are and then how many are we going to be able to capture and give the actual vaccine to like manually what could humans intervene and give it to and then you're going to hope well you're going to hope that's as many as possible right ideally uh, and then you can release them back into the wild and then what you want to do is you want to maximize the overall coverage so those vaccinated bats have to make contact with the bats that you didn't capture and uh, transmit the vaccine essentially and what we're really looking to do is uh, maximize that but we have before the biomarker experiment we have no idea what the actual transmission was so i just gave you a, a rough estimate of one experiment there's a couple more being done uh, about 40 percent and so that's a pretty decent number but now we know what approximate the transmission rate is uh, and then we can look at, well, if we vaccinate 10% of the population with this transmission rate, how many immune could we get? Uh, and then if we vaccinate 90%, 100%, 60%, all along that gradient, uh, and then combine it with the transmission to see what overall uh, percentage of, or proportion of the population we could immunize. But do you even know what percentage you need to get to prevent a rabies outbreak? Yeah, so uh, that's what we're we're working towards here. And so we have the, the vaccine model uh, built, and it, it seems to be working all right. And so now uh, I've implemented uh, a previous work into this vaccination model. And so far what we've uh, seen is basically looking at the overall prevalence when rabies is uh, immunity prevalence or immunity percentage uh, when rabies is present, and we can compare that to when rabies isn't present. So basically how immune overall when I say immune, uh, I mean, it, it's difficult to estimate because we don't actually know what, what quantity of the vaccine or the biomarker you need to actually uh, be positive or protective against rabies. Uh, so in a theoretical model, uh, we're basically looking at the overall proportion of um, immunity across the landscape with and without rabies. And right now, we haven't yet uh, really calculated the exact number we need uh, to, to eliminate rabies. But... Uh, you have to think about so the simulations that I've done so far have been within a single colony, and you can imagine that across uh, a country or Latin America that there's a, a couple more colonies there, and so there's actually a, a huge density uh, of vampire bat colonies um, and various numbers of individuals within each colony. So you have to always think about well, you know, maybe we can fully protect this colony, but there's going to be hundreds of other colonies that are, you know, and or rabies is moving throughout. And there's also movement between colonies. You have to worry about, well, even if we get like 30%, 40% coverage um, in a certain colony, uh, maybe that's protective from all the bats there that have rabies. But there's going to be other bats coming from other colonies, uh, potentially positive with rabies that could start a new uh, epidemic. So I guess this comes back to, to your older work and how do you know which colonies to target and where to target? Well, that's another thing that Kevin is trying to get at. Um, Exactly, because we need to know not just the proportion of bats within a single colony that need to be vaccinated, but what proportion of colonies we need to vaccinate. And that will likely depend on the dynamics of rabies within a single colony, but also how it moves around between colonies. And so what we need to understand is how the virus is actually working in nature even before we do an intervention. So there's a whole other set of research projects which is trying just to get at that question. We suspect that there probably are some areas that are more important for the long-term maintenance of the virus than others. So these might be areas that have really large bat colonies, or they might be areas that have a large number of smaller bat colonies, but that's exactly what we're trying to work out. Uh, if we can work that out, then that means that we can target our vaccination towards those colonies that are more important, which might allow you to have a lesser overall investment for a greater impact 
in terms of your reduction of rabies transmission. Sounds like a good idea. <laughs> we need to do it yeah. intelligently, right? You can't yeah, just. Right. Uh, so we know if there's much like with these colonies. Is there much drifting between? There's one bat. Sort of. Is it a member of one colony, one colony, or is it roost one place one night and another place another night? They are fairly sedentary animals. These, these when we're talking about vampire bats, yeah, they uh, their home range is probably something like five, maybe ten kilometers. There's a little bit of roost switching that goes on within those fairly small distances, but we've never seen long distance movements of bats. So that is why we end up seeing very consistent movement of the virus across the landscape because you don't have big jumps associated with a bat flying 10, 20 kilometers. Instead, you see a fairly slow progression of the disease across the landscape, which is just because of the very uh, short distance movement of the dispersal. The dispersal seems to be mainly driven by male bats, which is something that's commonly observed in mammals because uh, it's the, the males that need to leave once they become adults to go seek out females. So we suspect that it's those males, which when they move, some of them are moving while incubating rabies. And so that brings it to a new colony and that allows the spread to continue on. And what benefits does vaccinating the wild bat reservoir hold over vaccinating the livestock? Well, vaccinating the livestock is a never ending strategy. So it works. We have good vaccines. Um, they protect the cattle. They're a little bit expensive if you're a subsistence farmer in a developing country. That's one of the main limitations of it. The vaccinating bats, on the other hand, could, in principle, allow you to eliminate the virus entirely, especially if, if we do it in a scientifically informed way of knowing which areas to target. So if you can do that, then maybe you have solved your problem for a long time period. It, it, it's hard to imagine eliminating rabies from bats entirely across the continent but if you can eliminate it from an area then maybe that buys you an extra 10 years before the virus gets reintroduced into those areas meanwhile there are going to be other challenges um, people don't like vampire bats very much in places in areas where people have to live with them so they are biting people they are biting livestock so there are other health risks associated with those bites. There is economic losses associated with reduction of milk production. So people don't want the bats. And so we'll always have to keep that in mind. We're, we're probably not going to be able to convince stakeholders at the local level or at the national levels that a, a vaccination only strategy is practical. But one of the things that we'll have to think about if we can demonstrate that vaccination would actually reduce rabies then how do we combine that with some other form of population control to keep the vampire bat populations from either staying where they are now or continuing to grow more because we're protecting them from rabies. Thanks to Daniel Stryker and Kevin Baker for sharing their insight with us. And thank you for listening. You can hear more from Kevin in upcoming episodes, so keep your ears peeled. You've been listening to Contagious Thinking, the podcast from the MRC, University of Glasgow Centre for Virus Research. If you want to find more about us in CVR or to find Daniel's previous episode, have a look at our Twitter, Facebook or web pages. Thanks. <laughs>